Hello. Hello. Welcome to Infinite Cast, part 22. Two. 22. Mm. Uh, auspicious number. Uh, here we are. It's another Saturday afternoon. Yes. Uh, and we're ready to read Infinite Jest. Jest. I actually am now starting to get Jest and Cast mixed up in my mind. Uh, I want to talk about the GameStop thing afterwards because that seems kind of... Oh yeah, that's that seems like something very, that uh, uh, Jestian. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my big topic for uh, for uh, for this read. Sure, my, my outside of book topic. Yes, thank you, thank you, sir. Yeah, uh, should we get into it? We should. This one's a meaty boy. This is one of my favorite uh, sections in the whole damn book. Believe right, it or not, because the color of the ball and the color of the grass are like the exact same. So if you're not watching tennis in HD. It just seems like it would be impossible to follow. We we have been playing uh, as we record tennis uh, matches on YouTube on mute, and I was remarking that pre high definition television, I really don't understand how people enjoyed watching tennis on television. Yeah, you just had to kind of like follow the guys' so heads blurry. in line of sight. Yeah, I mean to say nothing of football, I really don't know how people were football fans. Have you yeah. seen what football broadcasts look like until like the nineties? Like, yeah, on like ten eighty or I don't on, know, uh, like or two hundred and eighty p or something. I literally don't even. I don't know how you could tell what was going on there. But yeah. then again, I'm not really sure what goes on in football most. Of the time yeah, imagine anyway. like like you know in a classic movie where you like see like a security guard watching a football game on like a a five inch black and white monitor. And it in just there. looks like an ant farm. Yeah, I I don't I don't know. I don't know. My I guess people just had better senses of perception then. Maybe the the HD is instead making it stupider. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean everything is making it stupider. That's but, true. Uh, the um, it's maybe it's weakening our eyes because they don't have to strain as much to uh to capture all the details. Well, my uh, uh gradually diminishing prescription. Don't lie. Yes. Uh, as as the D's go up, our uh, our perception goes down. Shall we? Yes, let's do it. All right. This is Winter BS 1960 in Tucson, Arizona. Ah. Jim, not that way, Jim. That's no way to treat a garage door. <laughs> Bending stiffly down at the waist and yanking at the handle so the door jerks up and out, jerky and hard, and you crack your shins and my ruined knees, son. Let's see you bend at the healthy knees. Let's see you hook a soft hand lightly over the handle, feeling its subtle grain, and pull just exact as exactly gently as will make it come to you. Experiment, Jim. See just how much force you need to start the door easy. Let it roll up out, open on its hidden greasy rollers and pulleys in the ceiling's set of spider-webbed beams. Think of all garage doors as the well-oiled open-out door of a broiler with hot meat inside, heat roiling out, hot. Needless and dangerous ever to yank, pull, shove, thrust. Your mother is a shover and a thruster, son. She treats bodies outside <laughs> herself without respect or due care. She's never learned that treating things in the gentlest, most relaxed way is also treating them and your own body in the most efficient way. It's Marlon Brando's fault, Jim. Your mother back in California before you were born, before she became a devoted mother and long-suffering wife and breadwinner, son, your mother had a bit part in a Marlon Brando movie, her big moment, had to stand there in saddle shoes and bobby socks and ponytail and put her hands over her ears as really loud motorbikes roared by. Why don't you dress in bo saddle shoes and bobby socks? We can, we can work that out. Okay. Uh, a major thespian moment, believe you me. She was in love from afar with this fellow Marlon Brando, son. Who? 
who, Jim, Marlon Brando was the archetypal new type actor who ruined it looks like two whole generations relations with their own bodies uh, and the everyday objects and bodies around them. Bodies and spaces? Mm. No. Well, it was because of Brando you were opening that garage door like that, Jimbo. The disrespect gets learned and passed on, passed down. You'll know Brando when you watch him and you'll have learned to fear him. Brando, Jim. Jesus. B-R-A-N-D-O. Brando, the new archetypal tough guy, rebel and slob type, leaning back on his chair's rear legs, coming crooked through doorways, slouching against everything in sight, trying to dominate objects, showing no artful respect or care, yanking things toward him like a moody child and using them up and tossing them crudely aside so they miss the wastebasket and just lie there, ill-used. With the over-clumsy, impetuous movements and postures of a moody infant. (laughs) Your mother is of that new generation that moves against life's grain, across its warp, and baffles. She may have loved Marlon Brando, Jim, but she didn't understand him, is what's ruined her for everyday arts like broilers and garage doors, and even low-level public park knock-around tennis. (laughs) Ever see your mother with a broiler door? It's carnage, Jim. It's to cringe to see it. And the poor dumb thing thinks it's tribute to this slouching slob type she loved as he roared by. Jim, she never intuited the gentle and cunning. The classic boiler, is it like a drawer at the basement of the oven? I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, This woman just sloppily bashing this oven door open. Women need to respect their ovens. Respect their ovens. Jim, she never intuited the gentle and cunning economy behind this man's, quote, harsh, sloppy, unstudied approach to objects. The way he'd oh so clearly practiced a chair's back leg tilt over and over. The way he studied objects with a welder's eye for those strongest centered seams, which when pressured by the swinishest slouch, still support. She never... Never sees that Marlon Brando felt himself as body so keenly he'd no need for manner. She never sees that in his, quote, careless way, he actually really touched whatever he touched as if it were part of him, of his own body. The world he only seemed to manhandle was for him sentient feeling. And no one, and she never understood that. Sour, sodding grapes indeed. You can't envy someone who can be that way. Respect, maybe. Maybe wistful respect at the very outside. She never saw that Brando was playing the equivalent of high-level quality tennis across sound stages all over both coasts, Jim, is what he was really doing. <laughs> no, you can't just call everything tennis, nah. David Foster Wallace. Uh-oh. Tennis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jim, he moved like a careless fingerling, one big muscle, muscularly naive, but always notice a fingerling at the center of a clear current. That kind of animal grace. The bastard wasted no motion is what made it art, this brutish no care. He was a tennis player's dictum. His was a tennis player's dictum. Touch things with consideration and they will be yours. You will own them. They will move or stay still or move for you. They will lie back and part their legs and yield up their innermost seams to you. Teach you all their tricks. He knew what the beats know and what the great tennis player knows, son. Learn to do nothing with your whole head and body, and everything will be done by what's around you. I know you don't understand. Yet. I know that goggle-eyed stare. I know what it means all too well, son. It's no matter. You will. Jim, I know what I know. I'm predicting it right here, young Sir Jim. You are going to be a great tennis player. 
I was near great. You will be truly great. You will be the real thing. I know I haven't taught you to play yet. I know this is your first time, Jim. Jesus, relax, I know. It doesn't affect my predictive sense. You will overshadow and obliterate me. Today you are starting, and within a very few years, I know all too well, you will be able to beat me out there. And on the day you first beat me, I may well weep. It'll be out of a sort of selfless pride, an obliterated father's terrible joy. I feel it, Jim, even here, standing on hot gravel and looking. In your eyes, I see the appreciation of angle, a prescience re-spin, the way you already adjust your overlarge and apparently clumsy child's body in the chair so it's at the line of best force against dish, spoon, lens-grinding appliance, a big book, stiff bend. You do it unconsciously. You have no idea. But I watch very closely. How old is Joe supposed to be here? He's already um, grinding lenses? He's 10. Okay. And he's a dork. Uh, I watch very closely. Don't think I ever don't, son. You will be poetry in motion, Jim, size and posture and all. Don't let the posture problem fool you about your true potential out there. Take it from me for a change. The trick will be transcending that overlarge head, son, <laughs> learning to move just the way you already sit still, living in your body. This is the communal garage, son, and this is our door in the garage. I know you know. I know you've looked at it before many times. Now, now see it, Jim. See it as body, the dull-colored handle, the clockwise, clockwise latch, the, bit of bug the bits of bug trapped when the paint was wet and now still protruding, the cracks from this merciless sunlight out here, original color, anyone's guess, boyo, the concave inlaid squares, how many, beveled at how many levels at the borders that pass for decoration. Count the squares, maybe. Let's see you treat this door like a lady, son. <laughs> Twisting the latch clockwise with one hand. That's right. And uh, I guess you'll have to pull harder, Jim. Maybe even harder than that. Uh, let me. That's the way she wants doing, Jim. Have a look. Jim, this is where we. But, you know, you remember the old garage doors before yes. they had automated ones. Yeah. It's not intuitive for a child. <laughs> Let's see you treat this door like a lady. Treat Jim. this garage door like a lady. Uh, have a look. Jim, this is where we keep this 1956 Mercury Montclair you know so well. This Montclair weighs 3,900 pounds, give or take. It has eight cylinders and a canted windshield and aerodynamic fins, Jim, and has a maximum flat-out road speed of 95 miles per hour per. They should put fins on cars again. Totally. All cars look like eggs now. They used to look like sharks. They, they used to look like sharks, and now they look like eggs. Bring back the shark car. Bring back shark car. I described the shade of the paint job of this Montclair to the dealer when I first saw it as bit lip red. <laughs> Jim, it's a machine. It will do what it's made for and do it perfectly, but only when stimulated by someone who's made it his business to know its tricks and seams as I, a body. I don't mean to take too many tangents, but my mom was just sending me some old, sending the family some old photos and sent one of her grandfather who was from actually it, uh, Italy, Italian. Mm -hmm. uh, and in front of his like 1950s shark car uh which he said she he exclusively exclusively referred to as the machine hell yeah as in kids getting the machine we're going to church i love that oh my god that is the most grandfather energy yeah la, mach la machine yeah um jim it's a machine oh wait no never mind uh the stimulator of this car must know the car jim feel it be inside much more than just the the compartment 
It's an object, Jim, a body, but don't let it fool you, sitting here mute. It will respond, if given its due, with artful care. It's a body, and will respond with a well-oiled purr once I get some decent oil in her and all mercury-ish at up to 95 big ones, purr for just that driver who treats its body like his own, <laughs> who feels the big steel body he's inside, who quietly and unnoticed feels the nubbly plastic of the grip of the shift up next to the wheel when he shifts just as he feels the skin and flesh, the muscle and sinew and bone wrapped in gray spider webs of nerves in the blood-fed hand just <laughs> as he feels the plastic and metal and flange and teeth, the pistons and rubber and rods of the amber-fueled Montclair when he shifts. The bodily red of a well-bit lip parping along at a silky 80-plus purr. Parping? Parping. Uh, uh, Jim, a toast to our knowledge of bodies. <laughs> to high-level tennis on the road of life. Ah, oh. What do you think he's toasting with? Uh, I have no idea. We'll go on. His, his dick? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, we'll, we'll move on. Son, you're 10, and this is hard news for somebody 10, even if you're almost 5'11", a possible pituitary freak. Son, you're a body, son. That quick little scientific prodigy's mind she's so proud of and won't quit twittering about. Son, it's just neural spasms. Those thoughts in your mind uh, are just the sound of your head revving, and head is still just body, Jim. Commit this to memory. Head is body. Head is body. Jim, brace yourself against my shoulders here for this hard news at 10. You're a machine, a body, an object, Jim. No less than this rutilant Montclair, this coil of hose here, or that rake there uh, for the front yard's gravel, or sweet Jesus, this nasty fat spider flexing in its web over there up next to the rake handle. See it? See it? Lactrodectus mactans, Jim. Hell yeah. Widow. Grab this racket and move gracefully and feelingly over there and kill that widow for me, young Sir Jim. Go on. Make it say K. <laughs> Take no names. There's a lad. Here's to a spiderless section of communal garage. Ah. Bodies, bodies everywhere. A tennis ball is the ultimate body, kid. <laughs> We're coming to the crux of what I have to try to impart to you before we get out there and start actuating this fearsome potential of yours. Jim, a tennis ball, is the ultimate body. Perfectly round, even distribution of mass, but empty inside, utterly, a vacuum. Susceptible to whim, spin, to force, used well or poorly, it will reflect your own character. Characterless itself, pure potential. Have a look at a ball. Get a ball from the cheap green plastic laundry basket of old used balls I keep there by the propane torches and used to practice the occasional serve, Jimbo. Attaboy. Now, look at the ball. Heft it. Feel the weight. Here, I'll tear the ball open. Whew. See? Nothing in there but evacuated air that smells like a kind of rubber hell. <laughs> Empty. Pure potential. Notice I tore it open along the seam. It's a body. You'll learn to treat it with consideration, son. Some might say a kind of love. And it will open for you. Do your bidding. Be at your beck and soft lover's call. The thing truly great tennis player, or, hey, the thing truly great players with hail bodies who overshadow all others have is a way with the ball that's called, and keep in mind the garage door and broiler, touch. Tennis touch balls the ball. are really satisfying. They're really satisfying balls. They are. They have a great weight. Great some of the mass. best. Yeah. We some should, of the best we tennis balls. Get some ball. of 
sleeve of tennis balls just to have around. Squeeze it like yeah. the ETA kids do. Yeah, exactly. Get a gi- one gigantic forearm. Um, absolutely. I think I'm going to order some tennis balls right after this. Okay. Uh, touch. Touch the ball. Now that's that's the touch of the player right there. And as with the ball, so with that big, thin, slumped, over-tall body, Sir Jimbo, I'm predicting it right now. I see the way you'll apply the lessons of today to yourself as a physical body. No more carrying your head at the level of your chest under round, slumped shoulders. No more tripping up. No more overshot reaches, shattered plates, tilted lampshades, slumped shoulders, and caved-in chest. The simplest objects twisting and resistant in your big, thin hands, boy. Imagine what it feels like to be this ball, Jim. Total physicality. No revving head. Complete presence. Absolute potential. Sitting there potentially absolute in your big, pale, slender, girlish hand. So young, its thumbs unwrinkled at the joint. My thumbs wrinkled at the joint, Jim. Some might say gnarled. Have a look at this thumb right here. (laughs) But I still treat it as my own. I give it its due. You want a drink of this, son? I think you're ready for a drink of this. No? Nine? Today, lesson one out there. You become, for better or worse, Jim, a man, a player, a body in commerce with bodies, a helmsman at your own vessel's tiller, a machine in the ghost, to quote a phrase. (laughs) Ah, uh, a ten-year-old freakishly tall, bow-tied, and thick-spectacled citizen of the... I drink this sometimes when I'm not actively working to help me accept the same painful things it's now time for me to tell you, son. Jim, are you ready? I'm telling you this now because you have to know what I'm about to tell you if you're going to be the more than near great top-level tennis player I know you're going to eventually be very soon. Brace yourself. Son, get ready. It's gloriously painful. Have just maybe a taste here. This flask is silver. Treat it with due care. Feel its shape. The near soft feel of the warm silver and this calfskin sheath that covers only half its flat, rounded silver length. An object that rewards a considered touch. Feel the slippery heat? That's the oil from my fingers. My oil, Jim, from my body. Not my hand, son. Feel the flask. Heft it. Get to know it. It's an object, a vessel. It's a two-pint flask full of amber liquid. Actually, more like half full, it seems. So it seems. This flask has been treated with due care. It's never been dropped or jostled or crammed. It's never had an errant drop, not drop one, spilled out of it. I treat it as if it can feel. I give it its due as a body. Unscrew the cap. Hold the calfskin sheath in your right hand and use your good left hand to feel the cap shape and ease it around on the threads. Son, son, you'll have to put down, what is that? That Columbia Guide to Refractive Indices second edition? (laughs) Down, son. My man loves lenses. He loves lenses. Looks heavy anyway. A tendon strainer. Fuck up your pronator terrace and surrounding tendons before you even start. You're going to have to put the book down for once, sir, young Sir Jimbo. You never try to handle two objects at the same time without just eons of diligent practice and care. A Brando like dis... And well, no, you don't just drop the book, son. You don't you don't just drop the big old guide to indices on the dusty garage floor so it raises a square bloom of dust and gets our nice white athletic socks all gray before we even hit the court, boy. Joe's dad kind of talks like Rick from Rick and Morty. (laughs) Jesus, I just took five minutes explaining how the key to even being a potential player is to treat the things with just exactly like the... Here, let me have this. 
that books aren't just dropped with a crash like bottles in the trash can. They're placed, guided, with senses on full, feeling the edges, the pressure on the little floor of both hands' fingers as you bend at the knees with the book, the slight gassy shove as, as the air on the dusty floor, as the floor's air gets displaced in a soft square that raises no dust. Like so. Not like so. Got me? Got it? Well, now don't be that way, son. Don't be that way now. Don't get all oversensitive on me, son, when all I'm trying to do is help you. Son, Jim, I hate when you do this. Your chin just disappears into that bow tie when your big old overhung lower lip quivers like that. You look chinless, son, and big-lipped, and that cape of mucus that's coming down on your upper lip, the way it shines, don't, just don't. It's revolting, son. You don't want to revolt people. You have to learn to control this sort of oversensitivity to hard truths, this sort of thing. Take and exert some goddamn control is the whole point of what I'm taking this entire morning off rehearsal with not one but two vitally urgent auditions looming down my neck so I can show you, planning to let you move the seat back and touch the shift and maybe even maybe even drive the Montclair. God knows your fetal reach, right, Jimbo? Jim, hey, why not drive the Montclair? Why not you drive us over starting today? Pull it by the courts where today you'll... Here, look, see how I unscrew it, the cap, with the, with the soft, very outermost tips of my gnarled fingers, which I wish they were steadier, but I'm exerting control to control my anger at that chin and lip and cape of snot and the way your eyes slant and goggle like some sort of mongoloid child's when you're threatening to cry. But just the very tips of the fingers here, the most sensitive parts, the parts bathed in warm oil, the whirled pads. I feel them singing with nerves and blood. I let them extend. Further than the war- this warm silver hip flask caps very top down its broadening cone, where to where the threads around the upraised little circular mouth lie hidden, while with the other warm singing hand, I gently grip the leather holster so I can feel the way the whole flask feels as I guide, guide the cap around on its silver threads. Hear that? Stop that and listen. Hear that? The sound of threads moving through well-machined grooves with great care, a smooth barbershop spiral, my whole hand right through the pads of my fingertips, less less unscrewing here than guiding, uh, persuading, reminding the silver cap's body what it's built to do, machined to do. The silver cap knows. Jim, I know. You know. We've been through this before. Leave the book alone, boy. It's not going anywhere. So the silver cap leaves the flask's mouth, warm, grooved lips with just a snick. Hear that? That faintest snick? Not a rasp or a grinding sound or harsh, not a harsh, brutal, Brando-esque rap of attempted domination, but a snick, a nuance there. Ah, oh, like the once you've never heard it, never mistakable punk of a true hit ball, Jim. Well, pick it up then if you're afraid of a little dust, Jim. Pick the book up if it's going to make you all goggle-eyed and chinless. Honestly, Jesus, why do I try? I try and try. Just wanted to introduce you to the broiler's garage and let you drive, maybe. Feeling the Montclair's body. Taking my time to let you pull up to the courts with the Montclair shift in a neutral glide. And the eight cylinders thrumming and snicking like a healthy heart. And the wheels all perfectly flush with the curb. And bring out my good old trusty, trusty laundry laundry basket of balls and rackets and towels and flask and my son my flesh of my flesh white slumped flesh of my flesh who wanted to embark 
on what I predict right now will be a tennis career that he'll put that'll put his busted up, used up old dad back square in his little place, who wanted to maybe for once be a real boy and learn how to play and have fun and frolic and play around in the unrelieved sunshine this city's so fuck all famous for, to enjoy it while he can, because did your mother tell you we're moving? That we're moving back to California finally this spring? We're moving, son. I'm harking one last attempted time to that celluloid siren's call. I'm giving it the one last total shot a man's obligation to his last waning talent deserves, Jim. We're headed for the big time again at last, for the first time since she announced she was having you, Jim, hitting the road, celluloid bound. So say adios to that school and that fluttery little moth of a physics teacher and those slumped, chinless, slide-rule-wielding friends of... No, now, wait, I didn't mean it. I really wanted to tell you now, ahead of time, your mother and I, to give you plenty of notice so you could adjust this time because, oh, you made it so unmisinterpretably clear how this last move to the trailer park upset you so, didn't you? To a mobile home with chemical toilet and bolts to hold it in place and window widow webs everywhere you look and grit settling on everything like dust out here instead of the club's staff quarters I got us removed from or the house, it was clearly my fault we couldn't afford anymore. <laughs> it was my fault. I mean, who else's fault would it be? Am I right? That we moved your big soft body with allegedly not enough notice, and that east side school you cried over, and that Negro research resource librarian there with the hair out to hear that that lady with the upturned nose on tiptoe all the time, I have to tell you, she seemed so consummate Eastside Tucsonian, all self-consciously not of this earth's grit, urging us to, quote, nurture your optical knack with physics, with her nose upturned so you could see up there, and on her toes like something skilled overhead had sunk a hook between her big splayed fingerlings and nostrils and were reeling upward up toward the ether little by little, I bet those heelless pumps are off the floor altogether by now, son. What do you say, son? What do you think? No, go on. Cry. Don't inhibit yourself. I won't say a word. <sighs> Except it's getting to me less all the time when you do it. I'll just warn you. I think you're overworking the tears and the... It's getting less effect effective with me each time you use it, though we know you, we both know, don't we, just between you and me, we know it'll always work on your mother, won't it? Never fail. She'll every time take and bend your big head down to her shoulder so it looks obscene if you could see it. Pat patting on your back like she's burping some sort of slumping, oversized, obscene, bow-tied infant with a book straining his pronator terrace. Crying. Will you do this when you're grown? Will there be episodes like this when you're a man at your own tiller? A citizen of a world that won't go pat-pat there-there? Will your face crumple and bulge like this when you're six and a half grotesque feet tall, six-six-plus like your grandfather, may he rot in hell's rubber vacuum, when he finally kicks on the tenth tee? And with your flat face and no chin just like him on that poor, dumb, patient woman's fragile, wet, snotty, long-suffering shoulder, did I tell you what he did? Did I tell you what he did? I was your age, Jim. Here, take the flask. No, give it here. Oh, oh. I was 13, and I'd started to play well. Seriously, I was 12 or 13 and playing for years already, and he'd never been to watch. He'd never come once to where I was playing to watch, or even changed his big flat expression, even once when I brought home a trophy. I won trophies, or a notice in the paper, Tucson native qualifies for national junior championships. He never acknowledged I even existed, as I was, 
Not as I do you, Jim. Not as I take care to bend over backwards way, way out of my way, to let you know I see you recognize you, am aware of you as a body, care about what might go on behind that big flat face bent over a homemade prism. (laughs) He plays golf. Your grandfather. Your grandpappy. Golf. A golf man. Is my tone communicating the contempt? Billiards on a big table, Jim. (laughs) A bodiless game of spasmodic flailing and flying sod. A quote-unquote sport. Well, he and I agree that golf isn't a real sport. Mm-hmm. Anal rage and checkered berets. This is almost empty. Uh, this is just about it, son. What say we rain check this? What say I put the last of this out of its amber misery and we go in and tell her you're not feeling up to snuff again? Amber misery would be a good name for a cocktail. Or a... um. A roller derby girl. Yes. It'd be a deep cut reference for a roller derby girl name. Uh, When you're feeling up to snuff again and we're rain checking your first introduction to the game till this weekend. And we'll head over this weekend and do two straight days, both days, and give you a really extensive, intensive intro to a by all appearances, limitless future. Intensive gentleness and bodily care equals great tennis, Jim. We'll go both days and let you plunge right in and get wet all over. It's only $5, the court fee, for one lousy hour each day. $5 each day. Don't give it a thought. Ten total dollars for an intensive weekend when we live in a glorified trailer and have to share a garage with two DeSotos and what look like a Model A on blocks. (laughs) And my Montclair can't afford the kind of oil she deserves. (laughs) Don't look like that. What's money or my rehearsals for the celluloid auditions we're moving 700 miles for? Auditions that may well comprise your old man's last shot at a life with any meaning at all compared to my son. Right? Am I right? Come on. uh, Come here, kid. Come here, come here, come here. That's a boy. That's my J-O-I of a guy of a joy of boy. That's my (laughs) kid in his body. He never came once, Jim. Not once to watch. Mother may, mother never missed a competitive match, of course. Mother came to so many, it ceased to mean anything that she came. She became part of the environment. Mothers are like that, as I'm sure you're aware all too well. Am I right? Right? Never came once, kiddo. Never lumbered over all slumped and soft and cast his big, grotesque, long, even at midday shadow at any court I performed on. Till one day he came. Once. Suddenly. Once. Without precedent or warning. He came ah oh i believe when he's saying ah oh he's drinking (laughs) Uh, ah. (laughs) i heard him coming long before he hove into view he cast a long shadow jim it was some minor local event it was some early round local thing of very little consequence in the larger scheme i was playing some local dandy the kind with fine equipment and creased white clothing and country club lessons that still can't truly play, even regardless of all the support. You'll find you often have to endure this type of opponent in the first couple of rounds. This gleaming, hapless locks of a kid was some client of my father's son, son of one of his clients. (laughs) Uh, So he came for the client to put on some sham show of fatherly concern. Mm -hmm. He wore a hat and coat and tie at 95 degrees plus, the client can't recall the name there's something canine about his face i remember that his kid across the net had inherited my father wasn't even sweating i grew up with the man in this town and never once saw him sweat jim i remember he wore a boater and the sort of gregariously plaid uniform professional men had to wear on the weekends then 
They sat in the indecisive shade of a scraggly palm, the sort of palm that's just crawling with black widows in the fronds that come down without warning, that hide lying in wait in the heat of midday. They sat on the blanket my mother always brought. My mother, who's dead, and the client. My father stood apart, sometimes in the waving shade, sometimes not, smoking a long filter. Long filters had come into fashion. He never sat on the ground, not in the American Southwest he didn't. There was a man with healthy respect for spiders. <laughs> and never on the ground under a palm. He knew he was too grotesquely tall and ungainly to stand up in a hurry or roll screaming out of the way in a hurry in case of falling spiders. They've been known to be willing to drop right out of the trees they hide in in the daytime, you know. Drop right on you if you're sitting on the ground in the shade. He was no fool, the bastard. A golfer. They all watched. I was right there on the first court. This park no longer exists, Jim. Cars are now parked on what used to be these rough green asphalt courts shimmering in the heat. They were right there watching, their heads going back and forth in that windshield wiper way of people watching quality tennis. And was I nervous, young Sir J.O.I., with the one and only himself there in all his wooden glory there mm. watching, half in and out of the light, expressionless? I was not. I was in my body. My body and I were one. My Wood Wilson from my stack of Wood Wilsons in their trapezoid presses was a sentient expression of my arm, and I felt it singing, and my hand, and they were alive. My well-armed hand was the secretary of my mind. <laughs> Lithe and responsive and senza errori, <laughs> without error, because I knew myself as a body and was fully inside my little child's body out there, Jim. I was in my big right arm and scarless legs, safely ensconced, running here and there, my heart pounding, head pounding like a heart, sweat pearled on every limb, running like a velt creature, <laughs> leaping, frolicking, striking with maximum economy and minimum effort, my eyes on the ball and the corners both. I was two, three, a couple shots ahead of both me and the hapless canine client's kid, handing the dandy his pampered ass. It was carnage. It was a scene out of nature in its rawest state, Jim. You should have been there. The kid kept bending over to get his breath. The smoothly economical frolicking I was doing contrasted starkly compared to the heavy, heavily jerky way he was being forced to stomp around and lunge. His white knit shirt and name brand shorts were soaked through so you could see the straps of his jock biting into the soft ass I was handing him. <laughs> <laughs> he, wore a, <laughs> he wore a flitty little white visor such as 52-year-old women at country clubs and posh southwestern resorts wear. I think I want, might want to become a visor guy. Interesting. Maybe next summer. Maybe I'm, next summer. I'm going to get my big Panama hat and a visor, and that's gonna be, those are going to be my two you should be You should become big hat guy like Father John Misty. Yeah, I think that's going to be my move next Joshua summer. Joshua Tree desert boy hat. Yes. Um, the brunch hat. <laughs> I was, in a word, deft, considered, prescient. I made him stomp and stagger and lunge. I wanted to humiliate him. The client's long, sharp face was sagging. My father had no face. It was sharply shadowed and then illuminated in the wagging fronds shadow he half stood in, but was wreathed in smoke from the long filters he fancied. Long plastic filtered holders, yellowed at the stem, in imitation of the president, as courtiers once spluttered with the king. Veiled in shade and then lit smoke. Uh, the client didn't know enough to keep quiet. He thought he was at a ball game or something. The client's voice carried. Our first court was right near the tree they sat under. 
The client's legs were out in front of them and protruded from the sharp star of frond shade. His slacks were lattice-shadowed from the pattern of the fence his son and I played just behind. He was drinking the lemonade my mother had brought for me. She made it fresh. He said I was good. My father's client did. In that emphasized way that made his voice carry. You know, son? Good Godfrey Incandenza, old trout, but that lot of yours is good. Unquote. I heard him say it as I ran and whacked and frolicked, and I heard the tall son of a bitch's reply after a long pause during which the world's whole air hung there as if lifted and left to swing, standing at the baseline or walking back to the baseline to either serve or receive one of the two. I heard the client, and his voice carried, and then later I heard my father's reply, may he rot in a green and empty hell. <laughs> I heard what, what he said in reply, Sunbow but not until after I'd fallen. I insist on this point, Jim. Not until after I'd started to fall. Jim, I'd been in the middle of trying to run down a ball way out of mortal, way out of mortal reach. A rare, blind, lucky dribbler of a drop shot from the overgroomed locks across the net. A point I could have more than afforded to concede. But that's not the way I... That's not the way a real player plays. With respect and due effort and care for every point. You want to be great? Near great? You give every ball everything, and then some. You concede nothing, even against loxes. You play right up to your limit, and then pass your limit, and look back at your former limit, and wave a hanky at it, embarking. You enter a trance. You feel the seams and edges of everything. The court becomes a, a, an extremely unique place to be. It will do everything for you. It will let nothing escape your body. Objects move as they're made to, at the light easiest, lightest, easiest touch. You slip into the clear current of back and forth, making delicate X's and L's across the harsh, rough, bright green asphalt surface. You sweat, you're sweat the same temperature as your skin, playing with such ease and total mindless, effortless effort and, and entrance concentration, you don't even stop to consider whether to run down every ball. You're barely aware you're doing it. Your body's doing uh, it for you and the court and games doing it for your body. You're barely involved. It's magic, boy. Nothing touches it when it's right. I predict it. Facts and figures and curved glass and those elbow-straining books of yours, lightless pages, are going to seem flat by comparison. Static. Dead and white and flat. They don't begin to... It's like a dance, Jim. The point is I was too bodily respectful to slip up and fall on my own out there. And the other point is I started to fall forward even before I started to hear him reply, standing there. Yes, but he'll never be great. Uh. What he said in no way made me fall forward. The unlovely opponent had dribbled one just barely over the too low public park net. A freak accident, a mishit drop shot, and another man on another court in another early round laugher would have let it dribble, conceded the affordable, not tried to wave a hanky from the vessel of his limit, not race on all healthy scarless cylinders desperately forward toward the net to try to catch the goddamn thing on the first pounce. <sighs> Jim, but any man can slip. I don't know what I slipped on, son. There were spiders well known to infest the palm fronds all along the court's fences. They come down at night on threads, bulbous, flexing. I'm thinking it could have been a bulbous, goo-filled widow I stepped and slipped on, Jim. <laughs> A spider, a mad rogue spider come down on its thread into the shade, flabby and crawling, or that leapt suicidally right from an overhanging frond onto the court, probably making a slight, flabby, hideous sound when it landed onto the court. 
uh, uh, when it landed crawling on its claws, blinking grotesquely in the hot light it hated, that I stepped on, rushing forward, and killed and slipped on the mess the big loathsome spider made. See these scars, all knotted and ragged, like something had torn at my own body's knees, the way a slouching Brando would just rip a letter open with his teeth and let the envelope fall on the floor all wet and rent and torn. You want to know how I got these scars, son? (laughs) Slipped on a spider. Slipped on a spider, playing (laughs) tennis, while my dad told me I'd never be great. All All the palms along the fence were sick. They had palm rot. It was the A.D. year 1933 of the great Bisbee palm rot epidemic <laughs> all through the state. And they were losing their fronds and the fronds were blighted. And the color of really old olives in those slim jars at the very back of the refrigerator and exuded a sick sort of pus-like slippery discharge and sometimes abruptly fell from trees curving back and forth through the air like celluloid pirates paper swords. God, I hate fronds, Jim. <laughs> I'm thinking it could have been either a daytime latrodectus or some pus from a frond. The wind blew cruddy pus from the webbed fronds onto the court, maybe, up near the net. Either way, something poisonous or infected at any rate, unexpected and slick. All it takes is a second, you're thinking, Jim. The body betrays you, and down you go, on your knees, sliding on sandpaper court. Not so, son. I used to have another flask like this, smaller, a rather more cunning silver flask in the glove compartment of my Montclair. Your devoted mother did something to it. The subject has never been mentioned between us. Not so. It was a foreign body or a substance, not my body. And if anybody did any betraying that day, I'm telling you, Sonny boy, it was something I did, Jimmer. I may well have betrayed that fine, young, lithe, tan, unslumped body. I may very well have gotten rigid, overconscious, careless of it, listening for what my father, who I respected, I respected that man, Jim, is what's sick. I knew he was there. I was conscious of his flat face and filter's long shadow. I knew him, Jim. Things were different when I was growing up, Jim. I hate, Jesus, I hate saying something like this, this things were different when I was a lad type cliche shit, the sort of cliche fathers back then spouted, assuming he said anything at all. But it was different. Our kids, my generation's kids, they... Now you, this post-Brando crowd, you nude kids can't like us or dislike us or respect us or not as human beings, Jim. Your parents. No, wait, you don't have to pretend you disagree. Don't. You don't have to say it, Jim, because I know I could have predicted it watching Brando and Dean and the rest, and I know it, so don't splutter. I blame no one your age, boyo. You see parents as kind or unkind or happy or miserable or drunk or sober or great or near great or failed the way you see a table square or a Montclair lip red. <laughs> kids today, you kids today somehow don't know how to feel, much less love, to say nothing of respect. We're just bodies to you. We're just bodies and shoulders and scarred knees and big bellies and empty wallets and flasks to you. I'm not saying something cliche like you take us for granted so much as I'm saying you cannot imagine our absence. We're so present it ceased to mean. We're environmental. Furniture of the world. Jim, I could imagine that man's absence. Jim, I'm telling you, you cannot imagine my absence. Parent is the furniture of the world. It's my fault, Jim. Home so much. Limping around. Ruined knees. Overweight. Under the influence. Burping. Non-slim. Sweat soaked in that broiler of a trailer. Burping. Farting. Frustrated. Miserable. 
knocking lamps over, overshooting my reach, afraid to give my last talent the one shot it demanded. Talent is its own expectation, Jim. You either live up to it or it waves a hanky, receding forever. Use it or lose it, he'd say over the newspaper. I'm, I'm just afraid of having a tombstone that says, here lies a promising old man. It's just potential. It's potential may be worse than none, Jim. Then no talent to fritter in the first place. Lying around guzzling because they don't have the balls to... God, I'm, I'm so sorry, Jim. You don't deserve to see me like this. I'm so scared, Jim. I'm so scared of dying without ever really being seen. Can you understand? Are you enough of a big, thin, prematurely stooped, young, bespectacled man, <laughs> even with your whole life still ahead of you, to understand? Can you see I was giving it all I had? That I was in there, out there in the heat, listening, webbed with nerves. A self that touches all edges, I remember, she said. I felt it in a way I fear you and your generation never could, son. It was less like falling than being shot out of something, is the way I recall it. It did not not happen in slow motion. One minute I was at a dead and beautiful forward run for the ball. The next minute there were hands at my back and nothing underfoot, like a push down a stairway. A rude whiplashing shove square in the back, and my promising body with all its webs of nerves pulsing and firing was in full airborne flight and came down on my knees. <sighs> this flask is empty, right down on my knees, with all my weight and inertia on that scabrous, hot, sandpaper surface forced into what was an exact parody of an imitation of contemplative prayer sliding forward. The flesh and then tissue and bone left twin tracks of brown, gray, red, white, Ugh. like tire tracks of Ugh. bodily gore extending from the service line to the net. I slid on my flaming knees, rushed past the dribbling ball, and toward the net that ended my slide, our slide, my racket had gone pinwheeling off, Jim, and my racketless arms out before me, Jim, sliding in the attitude of a mortified monk in total prayer. It was given me to hear my father pronounce my bodily existence as not even potentially great at the moment I ruined my knees forever, Jim, so that even years later at USC, I never got to wave my hanky at anything beyond the near and almost great and would have been great if and later could never even hope to audition for those swim trunk and brill cream beach movies that Snake Avalon is making his mint on. <laughs> Snake I do, Avalon. <laughs> I do not insist that the judgment and punishing fall are were connected, Jim. Any man can slip out there. All it takes is a second of misplaced respect. Son, it was more than a father's voice carrying. My mother cried out. It was a religious moment. I learned what it means to be a body, Jim, just meat wrapped in a sort of flimsy nylon <laughs> stocking, son, as I fell kneeling and slid toward the stretched net, myself seen by me, frame by frame, torn open. I may have to burp, belch, son, telling you what I learned, son, my <laughs> love too late as I left my knees meat behind me, slid, ended in a posture of supplication on my knees disclosed bones with my fingers racketless, hooked through the mesh of the net, across which the net, the sopped dandy, had dropped his pricey gut-string Davis racket and was running toward me with his visor askew and his hands to his cheeks. My father and the client he was there to perform for dragged me upright to the palm's infected shade where she knelt on the plaid beach blanket with her knuckles between her teeth, Jim, and I felt the religion of the physical that day at not much more than your age, Jim, shoes filling with blood, 
held under the arms by two bodies big as yours and dragged off a public court with two extra lines. It's a pivotal, it's a seminal religious day when you get to both hear and feel your destiny at the same moment, Jim. I got to notice what I'm sure you've noticed long ago. I know. I know what you've seen me bring home on occasions, dragged in the door under what's called the influence sun, helped in by cabbies at night. I've seen your long shadow, grotesquely backlit at the top of the house's stairs I helped pay for. Boy, how the drunk and the maimed both are dragged forward out of the arena like a boneless Christ, one man under each arm, feet dragging, eyes on the ether. Whoa. Wow. Now that's a passage. That is a passage. That's all one paragraph too, right? That's all one paragraph. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, I was I was ready to say, uh, you know, about two and a half pages ago. Uh, so I'm ge- I'm gathering this guy's kind of an asshole. But then you learn his his secret uh, tragedy. Yeah. Um, he's he's an asshole. But but how? Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, uh, I mean, I guess I have uh, a few things on that. Um, yeah. Just trying to keep them. I, lo- I love that how he keeps on uh, uh, equating or insinuating hell is the inside of a tennis ball. Hell is the inside of a tennis ball. May his father uh, do- burn in that, in that, that green, green rubbery he- hell. Rubbery hell. Uh, I know there's so that was a it's a dense text. Um, I kind of especially I was thinking about it before maybe just because I was thinking about like passages I like in fiction, mm-hmm. but especially towards the end and like the the this as this kind of comical bitter monologue uh, resolves into the gruesome horror that motivates it. Yes, uh, I was kind of thinking about I think I've talked to you th- about this before. Um, the 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 Snowden secret passage from Catch Twenty Two, or the the where um Yosarian spends a lot of the book talking about like so Snowden secret, uh as as he died and you eventually learn that uh-huh. it's his like guts that he's holding in oh yeah 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 and he yeah. like it spills out yes. and he sees him dying yes I don't know I just oh that yeah just came to mind it's fun the I mean I feel like this is uh, like. I, I mean, this this book is dense, but this almost could stand alone, even regardless of like knowing what happens to to Joi. Uh, but the idea that like you have this ten year old son, mm-hmm. and he's very smart, but also going to be very physically gifted, like you yeah. can tell because you yourself possess the same thing. And, like, how do you tell your son? like how to not fuck up their life like how to that i would say not like that well the just like the pain of of parenthood is like you have this soft child this potato (laughs) this gnocchi and you're like the life is going you are not going to get out of life yeah uh this soft and and squishy like and i don't know how to tell you that this is going to happen to you and like i wish it didn't but like i every parent has to in their own way teach their child how that they're they're going to get their ass kicked by life yeah by explaining how they got their ass by kicked explaining by- how their ass got kicked by life and then you as a child you say well i'm not going to get my ass kicked by life in that way and then you i'm going to get it done in, in a, a different, different way, way yeah. or in a in a you know mirror image way i mean this does uh support my my position from a few episodes ago that this is at least partially a book about beating up your dad someone uh, uh i'm sorry i can't i don't have the app at the top of mind but someone was uh, tweeting me about that that like one of the most 
Because I, I tweeted, I was like, isn't it crazy? All of us human beings, we're all born of parents. How yes. horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, so, some of us will also have children. Also, also, also horrible. horrible. <laughs> uh, the cycle of life. And they, the, they were saying that just that will continue to be one of the most interesting universal themes of fiction is that everyone has a, everyone everyone has has a, dad, a dad. And you eventually have to beat them up. And you eventually have to beat them up. And then he even nails, like, this is definitely a masculine book about fathers and sons. Yeah. But then the idea of just, like, the the, the silent furniture mother and how yes. that is its own horror in a way. The yeah. horror of your dad is that he's going to abandon you. And the horror of your mother is that she never will. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Oh, that's that's really succinct, <sighs> uh, Molly. Uh, I'm thinking about this a lot these days, man. uh, The Incandenza, uh, the other thing I was jokingly thinking is like the the Incandenza family, the three generations of them Mm -hmm. uh, are are like the Menneker family, except for film and tennis rather than suborning the U.S. (laughs) left. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Jesus, that is a story of of generations all kind of trying to do the same thing, huh? Yes. Yeah. I so but just a point of clarification. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what is older older Incandenza's name? His father's. Oh God! I want to say it's it's well if J, it's James Incandenza Jr. So his no, his, his dad is named Jim, Was and he, so his, his father, which I'm sure you clocked that James Incandenza Sr. refers to his father as himself, himself as as Joi is referred to by by his kids by his kids. Mm-hmm. Um. But also, so what? What is his his film deal? Is he an actor or a director? He's an actor. He's that's what I gathered. Okay, he's an actor and uh, a failed tennis player and uh, an alcoholic and um, a, a, a dipsomaniac, as I believe he's referred to earlier in the book. Yeah. Um, and his mom was an, an extra. So like they're they're filmic, but not um, yeah, that, not that on the classic, making side. That classic t- uh, combination of three generations of film and tennis stars but, but you have so in that way too it's like you have james senior who's an actor uh perhaps li- little james incandenza jr sees the the futility and the frustration of his father at the control of others who yes. won't cast him i'll make the movies yes i'll grind the lenses I'll not, grind not the just lenses. like i'll direct the movies i will make the movies yes make them in every capacity so he did what his father could not his father was trying to entertain by being an actor. He's going to entertain by making the entertainment. And also, uh, maybe I, I don't know if we totally know JOI's full history with tennis, but we know that he's like... He was good enough to... But he's to, to a, he became like, I guess, a pro? I think he was pro. I don't think he was, you know, he, he's better than but his father. But he's got the tennis academy, so... He's got the tennis academy. He, needs, he also needs to pass down this incandenza tennis wisdom. And then just, just to throw it back for this monologue from JOI senior to junior, do you remember the late James talking to Hal um, as the professional conversationalist wearing the fake yes. mustache? And so his problem, he's again, it's the he's dad lecturing the son. He's trying to do this, but he's trying to like do it in a different way. And he, he's instead of, you know, he, fe- he as a kid felt too much. He was always sniveling and crying. Yeah. And then he's got Hal, who's very smart and very physically gifted just as he is. But he d- has like this flat affect. Like, yes. And he's like trying to get in there. Oh, my God. Uh, I also I mentioned it during the reading. But as soon as I started hearing it, I could not not hear this monologue in Rick from Rick and Morty's <laughs> voice. Bur- burping in with his the garage. Burping and kind of like <laughs> looping back. The back thing is like, 
Uh, it's like the tennis Morty. It's about bo- it's about bodies. It's about bodies and motion, Morty. It's beautiful. You you would understand that now. <laughs> <laughs> the car is a machine, Morty. It's a beautiful machine. We gonna let you drive it, Morty. We're gonna drive the car today. Well, it's funny that is, you know, Rick Ricky Morty. Rick never explains anything to Morty. Yeah. at all. Which you know he he has him as like an emotional companion, but yep. he I, is Morty ever at any point going to be like, teach me how to make this stuff, it's you asshole? There are a few episodes where, where okay. he's like that, but it's also like, oh jeez, yeah, oh, do, we, do we really have to oh, go beans. play tennis today? <laughs> oh, I don't know if I want to move back to LA, Dad. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, even just the way that he wrote that of just like getting less and less coherent and more and more repetitive as yeah. he gets drunk is like so good. A two pint flask. Yeah, wait, how much a pint? A pint is like a big glass. A, oh my God. Yeah. A two pint flask. Yeah, Jesus. Two pints of whiskey. Jim, Jim. Cool it. And it's like in the morning. <laughs> yes. I also but, like the subtle the subtleness of him being like, I was going to teach you how to drive today because I'm too drunk to drive. <laughs> I need somebody to drive I me. was hoping today would be the day that I would teach you to respect this car enough that I can stop getting in like drunk driving accidents <laughs> or getting driven home. Oh, and that twin image of him being dragged off the court with his ruined knees and then so drunk that he has to be dragged and in, it's like Christ-like. Into, yeah, them. Fuck, man. Mm. Uh, that's, pre- that's pretty good. Um. Oh, also just all the spiders stuff. Yes, the Lactrodectus Mactans. Which then come in the JOI filmography. Where he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, the thing that freaked out my, but he, he both freaked out. He's, I think, as freaked out as his dad was, but then is also like, I'm going to try to, just this idea of control of like the false idea that you're in control of your body or yeah. in control of anything you do. Because like he was saying, I was in control. I was aware of my body. And yet. And yet. And yet he fell. Why did he fall? I don't know. A spider or some sick palm, palm goo. rot goo. <laughs> palm goo. The the illusion that any of us are in control. Oh, we try so hard. Uh, we've gone long on this episode. <laughs> I did want to bring up the 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 Reddit GameStop thing. Because Talk about control. Control. Yeah, st- uh, standing in the way of control. Mm. Uh, because. I mean, I I don't want to go too too long into it, but it does seem like it, that would that whole thing would be a throwaway joke in like a uh, uh well, a chapter like explaining the world, like in the vi- the video screen. When chapter. he's like, oh yeah, the um the boom and bust of the uh, vi- video phony um yeah. thing in yeah. decimated a mutual fund yeah. based on like someone's uh own personal well, yeah, interest. Yeah, when, when a coordinated strike from uh, from a video message board uh decimated a mutual fund by over investing in the videophony co- company. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh God, I wonder it's. I wonder what uh what DFW would have thought of of Reddit. I mean, forums were obviously around when he was uh an adult, but like not in that way. I'm sure he must have written a little bit on the internet because I mean he made it to 2007. He, I mean he d- he did, but at that point he was writing about like cruise ships and Federer. Like he, I don't think he was engaging with the online that much, right? I mean, and then all- he was writing about the he did his the I, Pale I, King, which is about the IRS and all these like paper. Yeah, uh, records. Like I feel like he was maybe decidedly. I feel like I did this joke on one of these episodes before, but it's like just g- given the timeline, I feel like <laughs> just it's like Twitter is invented, and David Foster Wallace is l- immediately like, uh, "Fuck this, I'm out." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at Jack has a uh, has David David Foster Wallace's blood in his hands. Yes. Uh, one bridge too far. No, I I mean if if he didn't. 
uh, I mean, I don't want to be too, too flippant about his, his suicide, but honestly, it is it is kind of a a, a joke <laughs> that ends his career. The pu- <laughs> the punchline of the whole thing, the, his his Joker's trick. He waves a with a hanky, uh, like bye, enjoy, enjoy, <laughs> enjoy, enjoy this trash culture that I, I that s- I tried to warn you about. Because I was gonna say, if he did, if he didn't kill himself in two thousand seven, he certainly would have by twenty twenty one. Oh god, oh no. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't see how you could have a a, a brain like that and and keep on into yes. this world necessarily you have to remember too like obviously he had an aesthetic and a worldview but he also just had straight up like major depression <laughs> which doesn't really care what what you think I'm about a, anything at the end of the day i'm a bisexual literary genius with mental health issues <laughs> uh, i don't know if he's actual bisexual that's a joke about another thing yeah uh <laughs> anything else you want to say that that, that was a roller coaster of a um, yeah that's a that's a long one that's that's one of my favorite like standalone um yeah. things because i feel like it 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 works as its own narrative r- regardless of how the rest of the book goes yeah that it really also fits in with like the first like 10 or so chapters where everything just feels like it could be a standalone short story yeah like really until honestly until we get to like the Quebecois guys standing on the hill where it gets a little more plotty mm-hmm. like those those segments don't really seem like they could be standalones but you know yeah. the first like 60 or so pages almost the introduction of basically every character yes. seems like it could be a, a, a standalone short story yes well, we still even have a few a few more we're, we're still not done with introducing who's in this book well we're only we're and, only uh, what like 16% of the way through the book 169 pages nice nice 100 and nice uh yeah, well, we got a lot more to do. Uh, we're just goofing now. Wow, these are some impressive, impressive uh, tennis highlights. Yeah, I saw I saw one guy hit a tennis ball from between his legs, which seems absolutely well, yeah. bananas. Backwards jumping between his legs. Good job, dude. It's like the air. That's like the Air Jordan. Yeah. Of uh of the tennis moves. Here's another thing I don't get about tennis. At the pro level, you can just surface your court with anything. Like here's There's the Monte different... Carlo, and it seems to be dirt. And you told me Wimbledon is always ex- real glass. I can explain this. There are different types of courts. Uh, it, and that's just where that's just where you play. So like, and it's based on season. So I think summer might be clay. Okay. And spring might be uh grass. Okay. But yeah, there's there's the like asphalt, there's clay, there's grass, uh, and players might be better on certain things than than others. Um, uh, seems unfair. There's different different it. speeds, obviously, mm-hmm. of uh, of of things. I know. It, I I kind of even didn't realize that that there were different surfaces. Like, imagine if it, there was football on like three different kinds of surfaces. Did we mention that we watched Seven Days in Hell on this podcast yet? I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe we'll talk. We're already long. We'll talk about that afterwards. If you if you've not. Uh, seen it because another thing I was thinking of doing is we should watch all the movies about tennis all the movies about tennis uh, there aren't I don't think that many but Seven Days in Hell is a very funny like uh, Lonely Island HBO movie should we watch the um, Emma Stone um, that's Billie what Jean I was gonna King. bring up yes yeah god someone should make an Andre Agassi biopic honestly uh, maybe you should write that <laughs> who do you, who do you, you even wh- get to play uh, like honestly right now our current crop of actors mm-hmm. Who's even supposed to play an athlete right now? Because that you get these sludgy, jacked up guys and then, playing Marvel superheroes, but I'm like, none of these people look like they could play and then tennis. Kind of like Twinkie little 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 Chalamets. And little Chalamets. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, who even looks like they could play tennis and be a dirtbag? 
<laughs> is it, would you call him a dirtbag, Agassi? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. He's a Vegas dirtbag. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we're over an hour now, so we should sign off. Okay. Uh, lis- listen to our latest episode of And Introducing, if you haven't already. Uh, we talked about Frank Zappa, another book that's amazing about kind of a, basically a genius trying to explain himself. Yes. Uh, Zappa rocks. He's a king. Yes. Um, rip, rip to a real one. Rip to a real one. Uh, and I made a little playlist. A, a bunch of people suggested Zappa tracks to me, and I made a little playlist, YouTube playlist of um, all the Zappa things. I, I tweeted it out. It should be one of my more recent tweets if you want to go back and find them. It's a, I think it's a really Getting good like, survey of, of Zappa. Uh, which can be a, can be a kind of intimidating. Guy I saw to get into. I saw someone respond to that tweet, and they were like, "Wow, this is actually pretty good." Zappa fans are notoriously bad at recommending Zappa, Zappa music. And I'm like, "What the fuck does that even mean? Like, what do you mean bad at it?" I do. Th- I kind of get it because it's. I think it's one of those things where, like, the more you get into it, the the less ability you have to discern what like a a, a layman a good, would like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're too uh, deep in the in yeah, the yeah. in the mesh. Yes, exactly. You're, you get lost in the sauce. <laughs> I, I got it. Zappa fans are notoriously bad at <laughs> recommending Zappa tracks. Really it's a very funny. funny. Uh, all right, let's sign off. All right, thanks for listening, y'all. Thanks. Uh, catch you next week. Watch some tennis highlights. Bye. <laughs>